you may be around the world and thank you for your company once again on truth2u.org that's truth2u.org joining me is the Director for Education and Counselling for Jews for Judaism in Canada the website is jewsforjudaism.ca that's jewsforjudaism.ca welcome back to the program Rabbi Michael Skoback Shalom Jano and happy Festival of Lights. Thank you, my friend. Happy Hanukkah. This is, of course, the time that we're uh, recording. And it's, well, you know what? Might be the last uh, Truth to You program for the year. You have oh, yeah, 2017 is, uh, is upon us. around the corner. Yeah. yeah, there it is. Now, we, of course, we're, we're continuing our series exploring the book of Psalms, a chapter by chapter, asking questions like, you know, who composed the psalm? What is it about? You know, what was happening in the life of the author at the time of the composition? How does it apply to us today? Perhaps also, what would Christianity have us believe about each psalm when applicable? And how does that deviate from the original uh, intent. Uh, this week, we are up to Psalm chapter 10. And uh, there's a couple of interesting things uh, straight off the bat, Michael. First of all, it has no address. It is actually uh, one of the few um, Psalms um, that doesn't have what they call a superscription or an address. There is no superscription. We did, we, we speculated, and is the uh, view of some that uh, Psalm chapter 10 uh, is a continuation of Psalm chapter 9. We mentioned that. Because, number one, there is no superscription here. And also, there's the idea I mentioned last time that there's sort of an alphabetical acrostic in the Hebrew that seems to continue over from chapter 9 to chapter 10. And there's also a minor thing that some of the commentaries point out, that in chapter 9, verse 20, and here in chapter 10, verse 12, each has the same phrase, uh, uh, arise, O God, right? Arise up, O God. Mm-hmm. Now, um, to me, that's not, uh, you know, strong proof that these two psalms really belong together as one. Um, I, w- I could just as easily say that they're two different psalms that are related because of that. Um, so, I don't know. I mean, uh, <laughs> I would say at the end of the day, it doesn't make much of a difference to me <laughs> whether these two... Whether they're, con- uh, whether they're originally connected or not. But uh, yeah. one thing worth saying, I suppose, is that if they were connected, this would make for an unusually long psalm in the midst of um, many not so long. Uh, in any case, chapter 10 is where we're up to. And you know what? On the initial reading of, uh, of chapter 10... It reminded me of chapter 14, and uh, I might address reasons why as, as we go along, but I'll kick off uh, by reading it, shall I? Yes. Why do you stand far off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times of trouble? The wicked in his pride persecutes the poor. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised, for the wicked boasts of his heart's desire. He blesses the greedy and renounces the Lord. The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. That's verse 4. I want to come back to that. His ways are always prospering. Your judgments are far above out of his sight. As for all his enemies, he sneers at them. He has said in his heart, I shall not be moved. I shall never be in adversity. His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is trouble and iniquity. He sits in the lurking places of the villages. In the secret places, he murders the innocent. His eyes are secretly fixed on the helpless. He lies in wait secretly as a lion in his den. He lies in wait to catch the poor. He catches the poor when he draws him into his net. So he crouches, he lies low, that the helpless may fall by his strength. He has said in his heart, God has forgotten. He hides his face. He will never see. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the humble. Why do the wicked renounce God? He has said in his heart, you will not require an account. But you have seen, for you observe trouble and grief to repay it by your hand. The helpless commits himself to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evil man. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations have perished out of his land. Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will prepare their hearts. You will cause your ear to hear. To do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, that the man of the earth may oppress no more. Michael. 
the impact this psalm has on me is that um, the the uh, the writer here, the speaker, is just about scandalized um, by the way God runs the world, um, and it seems that there are a number of uh, accusations really that are made uh, and uh, strong ones, and you know obviously we're going to see that these come up really throughout the entire Bible. Um, one of the main philosophical problems that all religions deal with, all, let's say, theistic religions, mm-hmm. is what's called in Hebrew, tzaddik viralo rasha vitovlo, that when there's uh, the righteous person suffers and the wicked person prospers. Mm. So, it seems that, uh, to, to some extent, that accusation is being rehearsed here. You know that here this the, the the this wicked person or the wicked people that are being, you know, spoken of, they they seem to be getting away with murder, and you know the 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 psalmist here is questioning why God you stand by, and let this happen, and so it sounds like at least to me that the psalm is really accusing God of being an enabler. Which is a, you know, it's, it's a strong accusation. You know, it's it's just, it's almost as if God, you know, by not stepping in, uh, not doing something, you're I- enabling them. Is it and is it is it enabling or is it uh, like I wondered when I when I read this, I thought it's as if the psalmist is toying with a deistic view of uh, of creation. Would that be fair? Oh, the idea that God created the world and then took a vacation in the uh, Barbados. Yeah, in a way. I mean, because he, he he begins by saying, uh, why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times of trouble? You know, all this stuff is happening, but you seem to uh, be absent. Right, but I think the deistic point of view, there would be no God to speak to. See, here, it's almost as if God is standing on the sidelines, right? He, he's there, but he's sort of not getting involved. Mm-hmm. And that's why, you know, the psalmist is outraged. Meaning that, I mean, it's true that if, if God was a deistic God and, and created the world and then disappeared, you know, there'd be, there'd be no one to point your finger at, no one to, you know, uh, to complain to. It mm-hmm. sounds like this author here, the psalmist, uh, is addressing God, is addressing God. You know, that God is there, so to speak, but, you know, hiding or behind a curtain or not doing anything. Mm-hmm. So, I think that there is, at least to some extent, the accusation of God being an enabler. Certainly, you get the sense that the psalmist is saying, look, it's just not fair, um, number one, to let this go on, to let these people get away with murder, and it's certainly not fair to the victims you know, why, what did they do to deserve, you know, all of this horrible treatment? Mm-hmm. And what's interesting to me is that it seems on some level that what the psalmist is saying, it's the opposite. He's, he's accusing God of the opposite of Moses' uh, you know, major um, defense of the Jewish people because many times when God was was fed up with the Jewish people, fed up with the Israelites, and ready just to do away with them, Moses would say, you know, but you're going to look impotent in the eyes of the world. Mm. Like, if, if you let them, you know, if you let Israel disappear or if you wipe them out, you know, the nations are going to say, oh, so God was able to take them out of Egypt, but he couldn't finish the job and bring them to the promised land. Mm. So, Moses employed, you know, in, in Hebrew we say, God, do it for your own name, meaning do it for your reputation. You're going to look bad, you know, if, if, if you, you know, if these people who, in a sense, represent you, these are, these are your, this is your flock. Um, if you don't take care of them, you look like, you know, people are going to not respect you anymore. And so, I think the psalmist here is saying, God, not only are, are people, innocent people being victimized and being hurt, um, but but look at how you're being perceived. Your your reputation is being dragged through the mud. Mm. And so I think that you know these um, accusations and this uh, um, you know th- this outrage or uh, you know protest. scandal. It's almost a protest of it's a uh, protest uh, of God seeming to be elusive. Yeah, like, like, how could you just stand by? Because, you know, it just, it, 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 for all the reasons I mentioned, 
it, it's just not right. Mm. It's just not right. And, um, you know, so the, the psalm seems to change direction at some point where in, in the beginning, the psalm is sort of outlining all of the outrageous things that, you know, we want to protest. And then it, it seems as if it shifts into a, uh, a sense that the writer knows that God is in charge and will take care of everything. It's almost like the tone shifts a bit and the the writer assumes that um, God is going to make sure the justice is going to be done. So it's, it's an interesting shift in tone that I, I sensed in the psalm. And you see, I mean, when you go through the rest of Tanakh, um, th- this kind of uh, you know sentiment comes up frequently. I mean, we see it many times in the book of Psalms. We'll see it soon in chapter 13, um, in the very beginning of chapter 13, where the author says, will you forget me forever? Meaning, are you going like, you, you seem to be forgetting me. Is this going to go on forever? Or the famous line in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mm. Why have you abandoned me? But you see it in Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 1. Why has the way of the wicked prospered? Mm. Right? Why, why are the wicked people getting away with murder? Or in Habakkuk chapter yeah. 1, verse 13, yeah. why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Mm. That's a very strong accusation. Mm. Um, Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 12, for they say the Lord does not see, does not, does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. That's also very similar to what uh, the writer says here, that, that, you know, that the wicked people that are doing the wicked, they're, they're saying, eh, God doesn't know what we're doing. God is just sort of blind to what we're mm. doing. Um, and Psalm 44 is, is very, very powerful, where the, the psalmist says, awake, awake, get, wake up. Why do you sleep? I mean, he's almost painting God as you're asleep on the job. Mm. Awake, why do you sleep, O Lord? Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and oppression? I mean, so this is a, a, a constant refrain, and um, you know, so so really, it's 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 two sided. Usually, when you read these books on theodicy, on on the the philosophical problem of of evil in the world, mm. people usually focus on you know why why do people suffer that seem to be innocent, but there's a flip side to that often. You know, when it's not a natural disaster, when it's caused by other human beings, you know, why do the wicked prosper? You know, it's the flip side of mm. the why do the righteous suffer. Yeah. Um, so, just it strikes me as a psalm where this is the major or a major uh, theme. Um, and it's interesting that you have um, a number of Jewish philosophers who spent time taking this second part of the theodicy question seriously. There's a famous work of Jewish ethics written about a thousand years ago called the Chovos Levavos, the duties of the mind. Actually, literally duties of the heart, but the, you know, the heart is often in scripture uh, the symbol of the mind, of our consciousness. Mm. So, he discusses I think six or seven reasons why God might allow the wicked to you know, succeed. Mm. Um, I don't think it's a really a complete list, and I'll, I'll get back later. I want to really focus on one, I think, very, very important philosophical approach. Um, but uh, just just quickly go through what he suggests. He says, look, sometimes um, wicked people have done, you know, virtuous things. And so maybe, you know, they're, they're, you know, God is sort of allowing them some freedom of action because, you know, it's not as if they're 100% evil. There's some good that they've done and, you know, they're, they're, God allows them to continue because mm-hmm. maybe they've done some good, or maybe it'll turn out that the success that we see is going to be the undoing of them. You know, a lot of people, for example, you know, they're envied because they've made, you know, billions of dollars. And often people that have made so much money quickly, it's their undoing. You mm-hmm. know, we have so many stories of people who win the lottery and it ruins their life. Mm. Um, or sometimes, and this is very biblical, is that God doesn't just destroy the wicked because he's giving them a chance to repent. I mean, it's one of the themes of the Bible is that God doesn't immediately, you know, wipe out people that do evil. He waits for them to repent. That might be part of what's going on. He delays punishing people. 
Um, uh, and he says it's interesting that um, that the, God allowing wicked people to prosper and to succeed mm. might serve as a test to some people who um, you know they they sort of put on an act of being righteous people and people who are loyal to God. But it could be that they're being tested by the success of the wicked, and that's that's and, an interesting thing because uh, and and the Bible talks about that that um, when when they have grown fat now where's that when they have grown fat uh, and they will turn away that's well, that's Deuteronomy Deuteronomy right. that's right right uh, so that's when they have uh, plenty uh, the tune will change will they be uh, faithful uh, when they no longer have to rely on me for their needs yeah. I mean, I think there's, there are many, many, many other approaches to – in the same way, you know, I, I gave a lecture last year about suffering and, you know, trying to think about why people suffer. There are a gazillion reasons. Um, and it's interesting. There's, there's a fellow that I <laughs> – that I – uh, I, I've met, and actually, I've, I've I've seen many of his, um, uh, many of his of, of the things that he's written, and he's actually a, a, a very committed Jew, very deeply spiritual Jew who's also a magician. Um, he's very close with Adin Steinsaltz. He actually wrote a fascinating book um, about. He was a driver. He whenever Adin Steinsaltz came to the United States, he would drive him around. I think the book's called Driving with. Dean Steinsaltz or something with Rabbi Steinsaltz. So uh, his, this fellow's name is Arthur Kurzweil. And he often uses magic as a way of communicating uh, philosophical ideas or, or Jewish spiritual ideas. Mm -hmm. And he says that, you know, when you think about it, the, uh, the problem of evil and suffering and even the prosper prospering of the wicked um, it's like a magic show, he says. You know, when you watch a magic show, what what's what works, what really you know sort of makes things happen, is that you don't really know everything that's going on. You know, the magician knows what's going on. The magician knows a lot more than we do, and that's why the effect of the show is so you know, strong and so mm -hmm. magical because mm -hmm. we just don't have all the information. If we had all the information. It would not be even interesting to watch for five minutes. Mm -hmm. um, so we live in a world where we don't have all the information, and so when we do have these feelings of you know outrage and like God, like what's you know like uh, if I was God, I would do a much better mm -hmm. job. I'm sure. Mm -hmm. I'm sure. You know, but we don't um, have the bigger picture. Uh, and yet, to come to that, uh, it's a frustrating conclusion to come to. It's difficult to find solace in that uh, conclusion to say, well, uh, there's a lot going in the background that we're not aware of, and we just have to. Uh, trust that God is a just God. That's what it says. That He is the ultimate judge, and uh, and and have faith in that because we don't know what's going on in the background, which no doubt is true, and yet is not the most satisfying of, of answers to the question. Yeah, I'm going to maybe a little bit later discuss um, the approach of Rabbi Eliezer Berkowitz. And okay. it really, he he really operates in the realm of paradox on some level. And I think that's really ultimately uh, the only way to really uh, sum up all of this. Mm -hmm. Is that you know this becomes for at least for the believer, it, you're you're living in a paradox, paradoxical world. Mm. Um, but maybe I'll save that for a little bit later. All right. Uh, well, this is what the uh, the psalmist says just again in regards to the wicked. The wicked in his pride persecutes the poor. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. For the wicked boasts in his heart. Uh, for the wicked boasts of his heart's desire. Uh, he blesses the greedy and renounces the Lord. He renounces the Lord. Uh, what? How do you read that? You mean what is the translation of verse three? Yeah, I mean I've got. I've also got another translation here. Uh, the wicked crows about his unbridled lusts. That's pretty good. The grasping man reviles and scorns. Well, there's a different word. Scorns the Lord. Um. So, verse 3, I mean, these are interesting. Psalms, as a book of the Bible, is one of the more difficult ones to translate. Um, I have in verse 3 uh, a couple of translations I consulted. For the wicked man glories in his personal desires or praises himself in his personal desires, and the brazen robber blesses himself for blaspheming God. Blaspheming. 
Yeah. Uh-huh. All right. And this is, this is, okay, now verse, it goes on to verse four. Uh, the wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. Now, I did a little bit digging there and I found that it was uh, fascinating. And I did mention that uh, this, this psalm reminds me uh, at a couple of points of Psalm 14, uh, that in fact, in verse four, it says, is it fair to, to conclude that it says there is no God? Yes, that's exactly the, the translation. Now, this is the New King James Version that it says, uh, uh, God is in none of his thoughts. In, uh, in my Jewish um, study Bible, I've got in verse 4, uh, he does not uh, call to account. God does not care. This is what he thinks. God does not care. But in actual fact, it says uh, there is no God. The reason why I pick it up is because when we go to uh, uh, chapter 14, uh, it has the exact same uh, phrase there, same sentence that it says, and it begins by saying, uh, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And it has no problem uh, saying it there. But here, it tends to mask it a little bit by saying that he thinks that uh, God is, uh, it says that God is in none of his thoughts. And in, in another translation that I have here, uh, he thinks that uh, God does not call to account. He doesn't care. And the and one uh, reason that I have read or an explanation of that approach is because the wicked is is not being painted here perhaps as an atheist of sorts because just uh, in the verses prior, we have him uh, uh, blaspheming the Lord uh, or renouncing God, if you like. Uh, and as he goes on, uh, we, we see that... Uh, in verse 13, why, is, why does the wicked, wicked renounce God? Uh, he has said in his heart, you will not require an account. Well, if, uh, if, if he says that there is no God, then how can he also say God will not require an account? Is that fair? Exactly. I think, I mean, this is uh, my two cents here. I think that, you know, the, the psalmist here is not really thinking about these people as philosophers, I don't think that he's that, or you know, is really um, writing this about people's theology. I think that what we're seeing here is this is the way he sees people behaving, mm-hmm. and these people, the way they're living, is it's it's as if there's no God. They they don't take into consideration the presence of God and when mm. they act. And it's, it's, it's as if they're saying, God, he doesn't look at what I do. God doesn't care what I do. Mm. So I think that really it's a reflection on the way these people are behaving. They're behaving, you know, as if, you know, there's no God that sees what's going on, that cares what's going on. Um, I don't think that it, it's really a careful assessment of what people actually believe. You know, I don't think these are... Here's, a, here's another Elohim we, we understand in uh, Psalm, is it oh, Psalm chapter 80 uh, is referred to as judges. Uh, the word Elohim is referred to as judge in Psalm, which one is it? Um, God stands in the assembly of the judges. Yeah. Um, yeah. In any case, is it possible because we're talking about justice uh, and he says that there um, there is no Elohim. Is it possible then that he's saying there is no ju- there is no judge, there is no justice to be had, there's no judge that's watching me, I can get away with whatever I want? Yeah, and what's fascinating, by the way, is that um, in some way, you know, that attitude of the wicked person, you know, almost gets echoed in this feelings of the of the psalmist here who's saying, well, you know, there's, there's some, someone seems to be not doing their job, mm-hmm. meaning that if God is a God of justice… Um, which we assume that's our starting point. I mean, that's how Abraham started his his argument with God. You know, shall a God who is the God of justice not do you know just uh, mm. justice? Um, so it, he seems to come to the, almost the same conclusion as the wicked person. The wicked person is sort of taking advantage of his assessment that. You know, God is not really judging. God, you know, is just allowing, you know, either God isn't there or God is there but allowing me to continue or God doesn't care what I'm doing or God maybe is too busy or, you know, or God can't pay attention to every person in the world. Whatever the thinking of the wicked person is, it boils down to that, you know, there's no one that's really judging me. I'm not, I'm not in danger. Mm. No one's going to call me to, to account. 
and the 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 writer who we assume is not wicked is saying yeah no one's calling these wicked people to account mm. you know there is no justice so it's it's fascinating that the, the the same exact complaint not complaint the same exact uh you know mindset that allows the wicked person to operate becomes the complaint really in effect of the psalmist mm-hmm. like well, there's no justice going on there's no justice in this it's a call for justice it's really a call for you know uh god to be more proactive in dealing with people like this so it continues saying uh, his ways and that's the wicked's ways are prospering your god's judgments are far above out of his sight as for all his enemies he sneers at them he has said in his heart now here's another thing that's uh, echoed in uh, this formula is echoed in in psalm 14 uh he has said in his heart and i think this is uh, mentioned twice in this chapter, perhaps even three times. Yeah, again in uh, in verse 11, he has said in his heart, but here in verse 6, he has said in, in his heart, I shall not be moved, I shall never be in adversity. Uh, in verse 11, it says, he has said in his heart, God has forgotten. Uh, verse 13, he has said in his heart, you will not require an account. Um, it's just an interesting thing that I find, and we, you know, we'll go into detail in when we get to Psalm 14 and in the, in the coming years. <laughs> that, um, that it mean says, in 2017. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Uh, and those two lines are, of course, in this chapter. Yeah, I mean, it seems to be the, uh, the way the psalmist is sizing up the wicked person, that you know, there. I think that what he's saying by, by repeating this idea of he says in his heart. Um, I don't know if it has to literally mean that. You know, the the wicked person has been having this, in, uh, you know, well thought out theology. I think it's you know he, he's saying that this is the way this person goes through life. This mm. is his inter- This is his internal dialogue. That whether the wicked person is aware of it or not, it may be on a subconscious level. But he's operating in his day-to-day affairs, uh, you know, as if he has tattooed on his forehead. Right. There is no, there is no God. No one's watching. I, I, you know, the, the, the cameras have been turned off, hmm. and you know, I have free reign. That's, I think, that's what the psalmist is basically sizing up. You know, either yeah. this person. I think he's speaking not about a person really, but about. A, a different, you know, a whole group of people mm. who were like acting like this, who seem to have this uh, this mindset. Now, another reason, Michael, why this reminds me of uh, Psalm fourteen, verse seven. It goes on to say, "His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is trouble and iniquity. Uh, his mouth is full of cursing and deceit." This is uh, uh, echoed in uh, or borrowed from, if you like, uh, from Romans chapter three. And this, of course, is where Paul does quote from Psalm chapter 14. But in actual fact, Paul quotes from a whole bunch of Psalms and uh, 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 passages and glues them all together. He's got a bit of a jigsaw uh, with pieces forced together here. And and it begins with, uh, in verse uh, 10 of of Romans chapter 3, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seek after God. They have all turned aside. They have all all together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. Uh, With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. And here it is in verse 14, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. So he's borrowed uh, here in in, uh, Psalm chapter 10. And indeed, I, I think he's he's borrowed from he's borrowed from Psalm fourteen, Psalm chapter ten, uh, Psalm chapter fifty three, I think as well, Psalm chapter five, Psalm chapter one hundred and forty, uh, and I, uh, to, to glue all of this together, and even Psalm thirty six. Uh, but I guess we'll talk more about that when we do get to um, uh, Psalm chapter fourteen. Well, here, I mean, the, the same problem that we're going to see in Psalm fourteen is very obvious here meaning that this passage he fills his mouth with um i've got i've got uh, his mouth is full of cursing and deceit and oppression right and paul lifts this and as you described as a, it makes it to a big rubrics cube mm-hmm. of other passages but well, he, he pulls the stickers off doesn't he and he's one of those blokes who pulls the stickers off and then pastes them back where he wants and says look i solved it 
Yeah, and the, the big problem is, I mean, here it, it, it's it's very, very overt, and it's overt in Psalm 14 as well. Um, but here, you know, Paul gives you the impression that that this psalm is describing mankind as a whole. That and that's his. Uh, that's what he's doing in Romans chapter three. You know, he's using these psalms to prove his point that people are wicked. Mankind is wicked. And when you go through these psalms, I mean, this psalm at the very beginning says that these are passages that, that are describing wicked people. There's, there's no indication that Psalm 10 is trying to paint a picture of mankind in general. It's clearly, you know, the, the psalmist himself doesn't include himself in this group. He's observing the mm. wicked. He's looking at them, and he just can't believe that they're getting away with murder. But there's no indication that that's Psalm 10 is painting a picture of mankind in general. And the same in Psalm 14. It begins the very first verse. The fool says in his heart, there's no God. It's not mm. everyone that says that. So when we get to Psalm 14, we'll really take off Paul's head because <laughs> this, there's a, so many reasons why he's misread that psalm. Mm. But you're right. Here in, 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 in verse 7, he's really, you know, when you say to remove the label – Exactly true. He's removed the label of wicked person, and he's trying to create the impression in Romans 3 that, you know, this is… It applies to everyone. Everyone. Mm. Everyone is like that. Everybody. Now, just as a side note, um, in my Jewish study Bible, I've got uh, verse 7, his mouth is full of oaths, uh, which yes, is interesting. I have that as well. You've got that as well. And then that makes more sense yes. to me because, as you mentioned in verse 3, uh, he blasphemes God. And, and uh, so, these would be false oaths that uh, uh, perhaps that are, that are being spoken. It seems that in verse 12, the tone is changing because instead of focusing on um, you know, what a lousy job God has been doing, so to speak, he now is sort of urging God. This is like he's for the first time urging God to you know, wake up and, and, and take care of the poor that are suffering and being victimized. Uh, by implication, you know, I think it also means to take care of the wicked. But then he sort of slips back in verse 13. He does. He sinks back into it and says, why do the wicked renounce God? He has said in his heart, you will not require an account. But then it changes again. And and we go to verse 14, and then he's almost consoling himself. And it changes entirely, Michael. And it's a little bit difficult to understand. He says, but you have seen, uh, for you observe trouble and grief to repay it by your hand. The helpless commits himself to you. You are, you are. The helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evil man. By the way, seek by out the way isn't, that, isn't that almost describing the paradox that I described before? Yeah. That in the beginning of the psalm, you know, the, the tone is, where have you been? And now in verse 14, you're with them. You're with them. You, 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 were, their, you were their helper. I mean, all along you were helping them. So it, it's, it's fascinating what happens here in verse 14. You know, that he begins by saying, why do you hide? And now he begins, but you do see. You know what's going on. So, what do you make of it? Because it's difficult to reconcile. You could say, by Mm. the way, um, that the beginning of this verse is, you know, sort of even more damning because he's saying, it's not as if you were not seeing what's going on and allowing it to happen, but you do see. You observe the, you know, I have the translation I have here, you observe the mischief and vexation. So, before, you know, the accusation was, you know, why don't you just uh, pay more attention? You know, isn't mm-hmm. that what you should be doing? Shouldn't you be supervising better? Why you, oh, why oh. you turn your back on the class? And it could be saying here, here uh, well, you do actually see. Yes, you see, and and you're even watching all this mayhem go on. You well, know, this it's is, almost as if you- This is interesting because, again, another translation that I have before me, you saw, for you look at mischief and provocation to give with your power upon you- your army leaves its burden. You would help the orphan. You would. You would help the orphan. Uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it, it's actually a um, ambiguous verse in some ways um, because so in, in well, I was going to say no. It can, it can be read either way. It could be saying that yes. you you do see, and and I think perhaps that would make more sense because when we get to verse fifteen, uh, it says, "Break the arm of the wicked." But as for the evil one, you will seek 
his wickedness and and uh, not find it. I have in one translation or in, in the King James it says, uh, break the arm of the wicked and the evil man seek out his wickedness until you find none. Yeah, I mean, it does sound, I think that the, the impression that one gets is that the tone is shifting here um, to an appeal to God um, to, you know, to, to really implement justice. Mm. Um, it seems pretty clear that that's what's going on as you move from verse 14 onwards. Mm. Where it says, break the arm of the wicked, I don't think that's in the sense of Sharia law, if you like, but I think it's... <laughs> It's rather uh, break break the strength of exactly the translation yeah. I have is really strength because mm. arm is always uh, symbolic of the strength of someone. The Lord is King forever and ever. Now that's a reaffirming. I mean, right there, the Lord is King forever and ever. Nations perish from His land. But again, that's a funny thing to say, isn't it? Because here, uh, at the time of David. He had uh, still uh, um, certainly the Philistines to contend with and others. Uh, how do we understand this? So it could be that it's, you know, speaking about uh, not his immediate situation, but, you know, what's happened in the past um, to the people of Israel. And it could be prophetic. It could be speaking about, right. you know, looking down the line. It's, it's, uh, it's hard to know if he's... You know, how could he be saying this about his present situation? Okay, and that's that's right. And I think that's the way uh, Rashi takes it, puts uh, uh, a prophetic uh, spin on it. The Lord is king forever and ever after the nations perish from the land. Verse 17, you shall hear the desire of the humble. O Lord, may you prepare their heart. May your ear hearken. Again, a plead. Yes. Okay. And actually, the Hebrew is... Interestingly, it's in the past tense. You have heeded. You have heard. It, it sounds like you know. It's it's expressing uh, a certainty that these prayers are being heard and will be acted upon. Okay, uh, but but it, but at the same time, if we go back to uh, verse fourteen, it's like saying you have seen. Not only have you seen, but here in verse seventeen, you've also heard. Uh, but it says in eighteen to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, that the man of the earth may possess, may oppress no more. That's, that's an interesting phrase, and I don't know that we've seen that before in the, psalm, uh, in the Psalms. The man of the earth? I don't think so. Why, why think so. the man of the earth? Meaning that the man who's not spiritual, the man who's ah. you know, re- sort of removed from godly concerns. And I think that's how he's been painting these people, that they're just – they don't operate in their lives with the knowledge that there's a God that oversees everything they do. You know, it's interesting, the Hebrew phrase for um, fear of God it also means that, you know, God is seeing. You know, when you, when you go through life with the awareness that God is watching everything you do, <laughs> it, it puts the fear of God into you. Mm. You know, you live with a certain awe. And these are people that are not living with that. And so, for them, they're just earth creatures. They're not creatures of the spiritual world. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one way I would read it, at least. It, and, and that's taking from, uh, I, I suppose, the fact that we are made of the dust of the earth, but we also have the, the breath of life breathed into us uh, by God. Right, which is a spiritual part. And th- those people who ignore the spiritual part, really, you know, what the psalmist here is saying is that all they are, you know, are you know, beings that are just like other creatures that don't have a spiritual soul. Mm. You know, what ma- what makes them different than the lion that, that he described mm. earlier on? Mm. You know, just a vicious, power-hungry, self-centered, you know, being that's just concerned about, you know, feeding themselves mm. and becoming, you know, just animalistic. not living. Yeah, an- exactly, animalistic. Mm. Exactly. Now, you were, you were going to return to a... Uh, uh, a perspective. What was that again? Yeah, let me just share one thing before I get to that. And this is a, a fascinating, to me at least, fascinating uh, exercise that we could do with every single passage in the Bible. But for some reason, it caught my attention here, which is the question of the names that are used for God, because um, you have really two. Uh, names, you know, major names in the Bible. One is the, the Tetragrammaton, the four-letter mm-hmm. name expressing mm-hmm. God's eternity. Um, sometimes it's translated as the Eternal One because it's it, the four-letter name of God is basically a combination 
of the three words of what he was. He, he was, is, he is, and he, he will be. Yeah. Um, and then you have the other term of God, which is Elohim or El or some form of that. And so you start off this psalm in verse one by asking, why do you, the eternal one, or we, sometimes in Hebrew we say Hashem, the, the ineffable name, mm. um, why do you stand far off? And then in verse 3, the, the psalmist is observing why he, the wicked one, has scorned Hashem. But then in verse 4, when it describes the thoughts of the wicked one, it says all his thoughts are there is no Elohim, switches to a different name. Mm. And then in verse 11, he, the wicked one, says in his heart, El has forgotten, this sort of short form of Elohim. Mm-hmm. Um, in verse 12, again, rise up the eternal one, rise up Hashem. Um, God, um, meaning uh, the short form of Elohim, El, here you have both terms, lift up your hand. Mm-hmm. And then in verse 13, why does the wicked scorn Elohim, again? And then in verse 16, the eternal one, Hashem is king forever. And then finally, in verse 17, the desire of the humble, you have heard Hashem, the eternal one. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I'm I going to propose a, a theory. I don't know if this is solid. But um, one of the ways in which traditional Jewish thought understands these names um, is that the eternal name of God is usually understood to be the essential name of God. This is, if you want to find a term that most... Um, uh, really describes, uh, I guess, the most essential way we understand God is that God is ultimate existence. And um, through extrapolating other passages in the Bible, we know that God ultimately is a God of love and a God of kindness and a God of mercy. Whenever God describes himself, not all the time, but when there were moments when God had to describe who he was, mm-hmm. he basically speaks of himself as a God that's long-suffering and merciful and kind and mm. puts up with, you know, with a lot of stuff. Um, Elohim, first of all, it comes from the word El, which means power or force. Mm-hmm. Um, Lavan, when he chases Jacob, Laban, when he chases Jacob and he catches up with him, he says, Yesh El Yadi. There is power in my hand, meaning I have the ability, right, to, to hurt you. Mm. So, obviously, it doesn't mean El Yadi, the God of my hand. It means there is power in my hand. Um, so, Elohim is the name that's used in chapter one of Genesis because it's the name of God that's used to create the world. Um, it's not so much the, let's say, personal God that is um, imminent, but it's the uh, God, in terms of his control over nature and power, um, the more transcendent way of looking at God, God, for example, Elohim is used for the judges in the Bible, mm-hmm. as you said. So, traditionally, these two names, one is seen as God's attribute of mercy, and one is seen more as God's attribute of justice. And the believer, you know, is going to be closer to God. So, the, the believer says in verse 1, why do you, Hashem, the eternal one, the God of mercy, you're the God of mercy, why do you stand far off? Meaning, where is your mercy? And then in verse 3, the, the writer says again, he, the wicked one, has scorned you, Hashem, the eternal one, the merciful one, right? You're, you're being taken advantage of. All his thoughts are, meaning the wicked person, all he thinks about is, there is no Elohim, meaning that... I think what happens in this psalm is we'll see that the, the the name Hashem, the eternal name, the four-letter tetragrammaton, is usually associated here in the psalm with the writer, with the psalmist. Hmm. And the name Elohim is associated more with the wicked that he's speaking about. So, in verse 4, he says all his thoughts, the thoughts of the wicked, is that there's no Elohim because the the right the wicked person – doesn't relate to, his life is not wrapped around the idea of a um, loving, kind, merciful uh, God who is imminent and who's with us. The wicked person, you know, just thinks about, possibly even if he thinks about God, but God is a, you know, impersonal, faraway, transcendent Mm. God of power that is a judge, but not judging me, 
<laughs> I'm, I'm not being watched by this judge. And that was and then, uh, just, it's been in the back of my mind since we mentioned it earlier on, but it's actually Psalm 82 is that one that I was ah. trying to recall. God stands in the congregation of the mighty, he judges among the gods. Yes. Hmm. Okay. I'm glad you found that. <laughs> As you were. <laughs> so, in verse 11, he, again, the wicked says, in his heart, L has forgotten. Again, the word for God, meaning the, the impersonal power of God that it seems, and it's almost ironic because L means power, and as far as this wicked person is concerned or these people are concerned, he doesn't have much power. And then the righteous person, the writer, says, rise up, Hashem, the eternal one. You, come on, get up, get up, you know, <laughs> take care of business here. Mm. But then he says, uh, God, using the word El, power, lift up your hand. Now, that is interesting. He uses both terms in the verse here, back to back. But he may be imploring, you know, the essential name of God that we use. But then when he, he, he asks God to lift up your hand, and God, and the hand of God is always like in the Egypt story, yeah. you know, he struck Egypt with a mighty hand. It's always symbolizing God's might in and power. smiting mm. the enemies, really. I mean, it's usually God's might is almost invariably used to describe how he smites the enemies of Israel. Mm. So, it might be that's why the, the um, author here, the, the psalmist, uses the word El, power, to describe the God in the second half of the verse. And then again in verse 13, Describing the wicked person, he scorns Elohim, right? Because, again, the wicked person's out of touch with Hashem, with the eternal, loving, kind, merciful, eminent mm-hmm. uh, God. But then the writer says, Hashem, the eternal one, is king forever. He's, he's, you know, the ultimate idea of God who is a loving, merciful God. He ultimately is and will be king forever. And then finally, in verse 17, the desire of the humble, you have heard a eternal one. So, I think that one thing to just possibly bear in mind is that the different names of God here um, are attached to either the protagonist, the writer, the psalmist, uh, or the name Elohim is more attached to the wicked um, because, you know, they don't relate to a personal uh, loving okay. God. No, I'm with you. And also, and also the, it's sort of trying to implore God to act as a judge against these people. Uh-huh. Um, now, what I wanted to share, and this might take just a few minutes, but I think it's it's a if anyone is going to read something on this topic, topic of you know God allowing evil to persist in this world, it's obviously any sensitive person is disturbed by this. You know, we, ha- we live in a world where there's so much evil going on. It's, it's, it, p- it paralyzes us. Mm. You know, it used to be that the evil would be going on in the world, but you wouldn't see it 24 hours a day on your computer screen. Mm. You know, now it's, it's everything that takes place in the world, or almost everything, you know, we see in, in, in glaring color. Mm. Um, so, any person that's sensitive is just has to be bothered by what the psalmist here is bothered by. God, like, what is going on? Why do these people get away with murder? And the book that I'd recommend, it's, it's, a, <laughs> it's an incredible book. It's called Faith, Faith After the Holocaust. Oh, wow. And it's written by a, an incredible rabbi philosopher named Eliezer Berkowitz. Mm-hmm. Um, that's Berkowitz, V-I-T-S. Um, it's an incredibly poignant book because, you know, he um, uh, he's of the previous generation. He was very close to the Holocaust. I'm not sure. I don't think he went through it personally, but he certainly, you know, uh, almost everyone in his life did. Um, it's a very profound book. I'm going to share just one of his thoughts. Um, he, he basically says that we as human beings um, – we go through tribulation. That's almost the you know the, the human condition, mm-hmm. and we seek God. We're, we're looking for God in this crazy, sick, violent world, and we can't find Him sometimes. And, that, and that's why the psalmist begins. Why are you hiding? I'm trying to mm-hmm. trying to find, trying to make trying to make contact with you. I'm trying to get you to you know to help help out here. And the Bible calls this sometimes. Uh, Hester Panim, the hiding of the face. And it's interesting that uh, Eliezer Berkowitz suggests that there are two kinds of um, God hiding his presence, hiding his face. Sometimes, obviously, it's a divine punishment. In Deuteronomy 31, 
God says, my anger will be kindled and I will forsake them and hide my face from them. I shall surely hide my face in that day. That's chapter 31 of Deuteronomy, verses 17 to 18. Clearly, the hiding of the face there repeated twice in the verse, in those verses, is a, a, is a result of God's anger. Um, obviously, we did something really to get, to get him angry. Mm, mm. Um, but sometimes, Berkowitz says, God hides his face even when people are innocent. And innocent people may experience the hiding of God's face mm-hmm. when they suffer um, through evil perpetuated by wicked people. And you see this most starkly in Psalm 44, where the, the psalmist says, all this has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you. Obviously, these are not wicked people. These are people that are real believers, and they've gone through so much suffering, and they say, but we've not forgotten you. As a matter of fact, I, I, in my Isaiah 53 lecture, I mentioned that years ago when I went to the concentration camp in Theresienstadt, I found uh, – th- th- I didn't find it. They, were, they took us to a little room. It was a secret room. They had – I think there were five or six secret synagogues mm. in this concentration camp. And they found one of these rooms where Jews met to pray. Imagine you're praying to God in the midst of a concentration camp. And they, they wrote on the wall in Hebrew um, this line which says, you know, uh, all this has come upon us and we have not forgotten you. Do not forget us. Mm. You know, it's, it's unbelievable to see this. Um, so, in Psalm 44, that they say, all this has come upon us. We have not forgotten you. Awake. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Why do you hide your face? But this is obviously not talking about God hiding his face because people are wicked. These are not wicked people in Psalm 44. Um, in Psalm 89, verse 9, the psalmist says, O God, God of hosts, who is like you, who is like you, mighty in the show of strength. Now, this is a phrase which comes up twice in the Bible, at least twice, where it speaks about God is mighty in his showing of strength. We also find this in Exodus chapter 15, verse 18. This is in the Song at the Sea where they say, Mi kamocha ba'elim Hashem. Who is like you among the mighty God? Mm-hmm. Mighty, O God. But the, the Talmud uses these passages about God's might in a very, very interesting way. Um, the Talmud says in Tractate Gittin, 56b, they say, Who is strong and mighty in terms of self-control as you, who are able to listen to the tormentings and insults of the evil man, and you remain silent? And they take this word, mikamocha ba'elim. Again, we mentioned before that el is a term for strength and power. Mm-hmm. Yep. Who is among you? Who is like you among the mighty, O God? But it sounds like, the, the rabbis did this in the Talmud a lot, it sounds like the word elim sounds like ilmim, which means those who are silent. And so they read it as, who is like you, O eternal, among the silent? Meaning that you watch what's going on in the world and you remain silent. And Isaiah chapter 45, verse 15 speaks about, you are a God who hides yourself. Right? Oh, God of Israel, the Savior. So you're the Savior. You're the God of Israel, but you hide yourself. Mm. Um, in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 17, the, 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 Isaiah says, And I will wait for the Lord that hides. God is hiding, but I will wait for him and face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope for him. Um, so w- what we see, according to Berkowitz, is that we live in a world where God remains silent, um, God remains hidden, not necessarily because we're wicked, um, but he remains silent, and yet we paradoxically uh, are tuning into him. So he's sort of tuning out, and we're tuning in. Mm-hmm. So what he says is, this is just to, to conclude, that we can have these feelings, um, meaning we, we have these feelings that where is God? Where Where is God in this world? Jeremiah expressed this, and uh, Job certainly expressed this, and David expresses this in the Psalms, and it's understandable. Um, but for God to step in and interfere um, is more of a problem, really, than God standing by on the sidelines and watching what's taking place. Because for God to step in and interfere with human free will 
is really not a viable option. You know, when, when people ask me about well, why is there so much evil in the world, and I ask them rhetorically, I say, would you prefer to live in a world where nothing wrong ever happened? Meaning, would you prefer to live in a world where every time someone was about to yell at their child, God would strike them unable to speak? Mm. Or any time someone passed someone in the street that was begging for money and the person was not going to give them money, God would take their hand, put it into the pocket, pull out a coin and give it to the person. Or every time someone was about to stab someone, God stopped that activity. Meaning that we could be living in a world where we have no moral free will, we're all robots, we do exactly what God Mm. wants, and no one's going to do any evil. And is that the kind of world we want? So the truth is that you know, we, we live in a world where there is this evil, we observe it, and it's frustrating, and it's, 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 it, it's infuriating, but what are we asking God to do when we say, God, stop hiding, look at what's going on? Of course God knows what's going on. Are we really asking God to stop the evil from happening? You know, if man is to be man, Berkowitz says, if man is to be man, God must be long-suffering with us. God has to be able to That's a really sit good back, way to put it. Yeah. Right? And watch what's going on. Mm. And so um, God tolerates the sinner. We see that in Ezekiel 18. Um, but it's, what's what's terrifying is by tolerating the sinner, God has to abandon the victim. That's ultimately what happens. Mm. And so God's long suffering, it's interesting that these are two sides of the coin. That when we say that God hides his face, it's, it's basically saying the same thing as God being long-suffering and putting up with evil, meaning that the fact that God has to hide his face from evil basically is saying the same thing, that God has to sit on the sidelines and watch what's going on. Um, but otherwise, it, yeah. Well, I was just going to say, but otherwise, I mean, yeah, but it, but it does say, uh, as we pointed out earlier, uh, in verse uh, 14 and in verse eight, uh, 17, he, it, it's not unchecked. He does observe, he does see, he does hear, and he does notice, and he, uh, it's not unchecked. But he does more, actually, and mm-hmm. this is what Berkowitz says. He says that, and this is an amazing way he, he phrases it, he says that God's presence in history must remain unconvincing. That amazing line. He says God's presence must remain unconvincing. You know, the Kabbalists speak about something called Simtsum, that and I, people, God forbid, shouldn't take this on a physical level, but they say that when God created the world, he had to constrict himself to allow a space for the world to exist. And it, it shouldn't be taken in a, in a spatial way that, you know, God has, you know, physically made himself smaller. But uh, philosophically, really, what it's saying is that in order for God not to overwhelm the world with his presence, which would interfere with human free will, meaning that if we Uh. lived in a world where God's presence was in our face and we couldn't ignore his presence, we couldn't act. uh, You know, if, if you're in a store and there are eight armed guards that are following you around, you can't shoplift, you can't steal. So, if God is in our face and God is present in history and obvious in history and obvious in our lives, if every person that, you know, uh, did good was immediately rewarded with a million dollars and every person that did the wrong thing was smitten with boils, no one would be bad. Hmm. So, the, the Kabbalists say that God had to constrict his presence from the world in order to allow us to be human. And so, Berkowitz says that God's presence in history has to be unconvincing, yet – he says, the awesomeness of God is revealed in the mysterious survival of Israel. Ah, and he says, he says it's that's, because that's exactly it. And I've got the now. I've, I know you want to continue, but I've just got it in front of me. I just thought, what a fascinating uh, statement to make in light of. Uh, and I'm sure we could talk about this now for hours. We won't. But uh, in light of Exodus chapter 19, verse nine, where where God is speaking to Moses, and He says, "Listen, I'm going to come and I'm going to talk." audibly so that the people will hear so that they will believe in you forever. How, how does one understand that with, with the um, uh, mindset that God has to remain unconvincing? And yet, uh, so, so please continue, I think, the point that you're about to make. Oh, that, that's, that's a question I asked when I was in rabbinical school. Right. <laughs> Meaning, uh, and it's a, it's a great question, and I don't want to pat myself on the back, but, it, no, but it's a strong question. Meaning that if we always say that 
uh, let's say, every miracle that God does, there has to be a naturalistic way of explaining it. Otherwise, mm. we're robbed of our free will. So, for example, the splitting of the Red Sea, you could say, what's the big deal? A big wind came. It's not a big deal. Or when the earth swallowed up Korach, you can say, big deal, there was an earthquake. So, really, every single supernatural miracle that happened, and, you know, uh, uh, Velikovsky wrote a whole book trying to show how the ten plagues were you know, explained through natural phenomenon. Because if we weren't able to give a natural explanation um, for what, what happens in the supernatural realm, these miracles would rob us of our free will. Hmm. The problem, as you point out, is how do you explain the, the revelation of God at Mount Sinai where hmm. he speaks and the, the people are actually hearing God prophetically. Mm. So, uh, it's an incredibly strong question, meaning that that would seem to rob people of the free will. So, the answer that I came up with was that these are people, the people that stood at Mount Sinai had gone through the ten plagues. They went through the splitting of the yes. sea. And they didn't interpret it naturally, meaning they clearly understood that God was doing all of these things. So, by the time they got to Mount Sinai, they were so electrically aware of God's presence that when God spoke, it didn't take away their free will. They mm. had already reached a level where their free will wouldn't be uh, robbed mm. by God being overt and revealing himself. Mm. But it, it is a different discussion. Um, well, I, 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 would, I would add to but, that. I would agree with what you're saying. I think that, uh, that such an action didn't intervene with uh, – uh, didn't uh, get in the way of their free will. Uh, the purpose of the, of the national revelation was to set them apart from all other uh, uh, religious expressions in that they had a, uh, a, um, a national or corporate revelation as opposed to a private revelation, which we see in all other religions. And uh, so I, th I think it's not a matter of intervening in uh, free will, but rather a setting apart of, of Israel as a whole. And as uh, I think you were about to say in regards to Berkowitz, uh, that uh, he points out that uh, Israel – is uh, is still with us today, and that stands as a testimony. Is this is this where he's going with that? Well, th that's the paradox. He says that because this is an incredible idea, is because of the survival of Israel, and we have to think about this. Mm. Think, you know, our survival was not like the the Swiss who were living behind the Alps, and like no one could bother them, or the or the Chinese who were a billion mm. people living there. We we were basically lambs living among wolves Jews our existence has been been so tenuous in the world you know Toynbee the the historian he said that we broke all the laws of nature we shouldn't exist he called us a fossil we, we shouldn't be here in the world it doesn't make any sense you know you think about it Every factor of survival is the exact opposite of what people need to survive. We've been exiled from our land. Mm. We're a small nation. We're hated by everyone. It, it, it's, there's no reason why we should exist. And so what Berkowitz says is that it's the mysterious and miraculous survival of Israel. Because of that, he says the, quest, the prophets could question God's justice and at the same time believe in him. Mm. That's the tension, yep. that it, it seems as if, and that's the paradox, it looks like God is just uh, asleep at the wheel, and yet we know at the same time he's not. Mm -hmm. He's not asleep because he has miraculously been ensuring uh, over history that his people continue to exist. And so, the paradox is that we know he's there, and we know he's not just there, but he's intervening on our behalf, and he's keeping us alive. And yet, the, the, I guess, when, when we're going through our history, we experience the trauma, you know, of all of these uh, persecutions and all of these, mm. uh, you know, horrible experiences. So, you, you can't blame people. And that's why it's so interesting is on Tisha B'Av, the ninth of the month of mm -hmm. Av, ninth day of Av, when we commemorate the destruction of Jerusalem, both in the first temple and the second temple and the destruction of the temples. And really, it focuses on so many different, you know, disasters in Jewish history. And one of the words that comes up in, in the, the dirges that are recited is, Lama, why? You know, why does this happen to us? But really, 
the 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 word can be read as lemma for one mm. purpose meaning that we don't the truth is we we don't know how god runs the world god says in isaiah you know my thoughts are not your thoughts and it's impossible for human beings to understand you know why god god does what he does exactly understanding how he runs the world but we can ask you know for what purpose is this I mean, we're going through a difficult time what are we supposed to learn from it what's the purpose of it mm. you know it's not an accusation god why are you doing this like what's wrong with you you know we we assume god knows what he's doing and that's the paradox that's the tension we live with that we can question god's justice at the same time we know that he is a judge mm. he is running the world um you know it just looks like he's out of the picture but we know he's here because otherwise we wouldn't be here that's my take on Psalm 10. I, I really, I think that's profound. And uh, and that tug of war is, I'm, I'm glad you put it that way. Uh, and I certainly want to, uh, just to repeat, uh, that is uh, Eliezer Berkowitz. And the uh, the book is called Faith After the Holocaust. Uh, I'm going to put that on the list. Amazing book, by the way. Amazing. That is it. Psalm chapter 10. Thank you very much, Rabbi Michael Skoback. Uh, from Jews for Judaism in Canada, Jews for Judaism in Canada. The, web- the website is JewsforJudaism.ca. JewsforJudaism.ca. Thank you very much for coming back on to exploring the Psalms with us, my friend. Great to be here with you, and look forward to Psalm number eleven. Psalm number eleven is coming up soon, dear friends. In two thousand and seventeen, we'll be doing that sometime. Until then, be blessed and be set apart by the truth of our Father's word. Shalom. Thank you.